I'm Ann Rosenfield of Charitably Speaking, and I was lucky enough to be the chair of AFP Congress this year, and I'm joined by... Deborah Champion, fundraising strategist at Blakely, and the chair of the Education Committee for Congress this year. Uh, welcome to our podcast series. I hope that you're enjoying all of the different episodes that we're putting out. This one's a real important one for our industry about retaining and attracting new talent. And I'm particularly pleased to welcome Kashana to our podcast. I first met her a couple of years ago in Washington, D.C., and the minute I met her, I knew she was going to be a great speaker. Enjoy. Enjoy. My name's Nancy McInnes. I'm your session host. I have a, a few duties before I introduce our lovely speaker this morning. Uh, Use the app if you haven't done it already. When we get to the end of the session, we'll want some um, evaluations, and it's a great tool for doing that. There are evaluations on your table for that, but try using the app. It's a really great tool. Uh, we have Wi-Fi in the room, and if you're using it, the password is CCS Fundraising. And now for the session you're all here. This is Sticky Teams, how to recruit and retrain fundraising talent that sticks. And our presenter this morning is Kashana Palmer. Kashana is the founder and CEO. She's a national speaker, trainer, and coach with 16-year background in fundraising and marketing and talent management. She's a supernova on any stage and platforms due to her charismatic and candid delivery, and I can't wait to hear it. Thank Anna. you. Good morning. Listen, y'all, I know it's 9 o'clock in the morning, so I've been, if you got here a little early, you know I was playing my jams, and so I have one more jam to play before we get started, okay? My daughter told me this morning at 6 a.m. I got to play this song because it's her favorite, so here we go. Okay, y'all just got to bear with me. Just come. We're going to give a good 30 seconds. This is about living your best life, which is what we're doing right now with fundraisers, right? So I got to give y'all a... Everybody has their coffee. Everybody's awake. We're feeling good. We have our tea. We had our breakfast. We're living our best life. This little Duval. I hadn't heard of this guy, you know, but he's had a, he has a nice little groove. He's living my best life, but I'm not going back and forth with y'all today, okay? I'm going to live my best life. All right. So I am going to welcome you all into my session. Do my little groove. Okay, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. My name is Kashana Palmer. For those of you who I had the opportunity to meet um, over the last 24 hours, it has been such a pleasure. And if you came to my session yesterday on emotional intelligence, thank you for coming back. Um, for those of you who have not met me yet, I am a CFRE. I am a trainer, a coach, a strategist, and I have spent pretty much the last few years of my life, but it feels like my whole career, really focused on making sure that career professionals, fundraisers just like you, are living your best life, okay? That you are growing, that your teams are growing, that you are raising the money you need to raise, hitting your goals, and doing all of that without having a Real Housewives of New Jersey a la 2009 flip the tables moment, okay? And so I try to help you do that work. And if credentials are your thing, I am just about to hit, woo, January, 17 years in fundraising, marketing, and communications. I have led six development policy and Marcom teams. Most of my work has been in external affairs, so I've had a blend of fundraising and marketing communications and policy work. Um, I'm an AFP master trainer. I'm a board source governance certified trainer. Um, they just keep telling me to do stuff. I do strength finder coaching, and so I love this stuff. Can you tell? 
Um, I teach at Baruch College in New York City in their communications department on intro to uh, speeches. And I also teach in the B School at Long Island University in Brooklyn um, in their marketing department. But for fun in my real life, um, I am a travel buff. I love to travel. Um, if you catch me in your city and there's a live band, please invite me out. I will go. And I'm a blogger at The Secret Lives of Leaders. It's my blog where I talk about the things we don't want to talk about in leadership and management, like my dating life, okay? <laughs> but my most important job and my hardest job, to be quite frank, y'all, is being solo mama to this about-to-be teenager. She is turning 13 in a week. Oh, hello. Okay, I need all the luck. I need hugs. I have your praying type. I need prayers. I need sage. I need everything you can give me, okay? Put it on me. I need what? Hello. You know, and I'm a whiskey girl, but let me tell you what, I will take this good wine. I'm not going to turn down a good bottle. Uh, but Sanai is my daughter. She's the reason I do what I do um, so that she has an example of what it's like to have a working mom who gets up every day doing the work that she loves and enjoys and can live out her most authentic life on the path that I have been called to do. And so I'm so happy to be here with you all this morning. Quick housekeeping. Um, if you all are the social type, I invite you to connect with me on social media. My handle is at Fund Diva across every single handle. I do reply to everyone. I retweet everything. Um, I'm very engaged, maybe, maybe unnecessarily so. Um, but I like it. That's what I do when I travel. I'm on the road a lot. Um, if LinkedIn is your jam, please connect with me on LinkedIn at Kashana Palmer, two SHs. And we have our hashtags for this conference, AFP Congress 2018. If I say something that floats your boat, fix it, Kish, and the queen of focus. All right, ready to get started? So before we jump in, one last piece. Um, you're going to have some feedback forms on your tables in yellow. Please fill that out for Congress so that we can keep delivering great sessions. Um, I like to get my own feedback, okay? That's the type A in me. Um, it looks like this. So it's on my website. The bit.ly is feedback for Kish. Very simple. It looks just like this. It asks you three simple questions about how the session shaped up for you today so that I can continue to develop sessions that matter for professionals just like you. And feedback is food for my soul, and, so, and it is a gift. And so please, please, I, I love gifts. Okay, gifts are my love language. So uh, deliver on that for me. All right, so what are we going to cover today? What are we here for? So how many folks do I have in the rooms that are managers currently? Awesome. Uh, aspiring. Cool. Who has hiring decision-making as part of their job? Awesome. Who is terrified of tiring? Wait, before you raise your hand, don't look around, okay? This is my thing. So we're having a Vegas moment. Every session I do is like Vegas. We don't let it out. Okay, hiring terrifies me. Somebody's going to be brave. Okay, for those of you, thank you so much for that. Um, I love hiring new people. Okay, so wait a minute. So if hiring does not terrify you and you don't love hiring new people because nobody raised their hand on that one. Oh, you raised your hand, okay. Come on now, what's your name? Steve loves hiring new people, as do I, Steve. I love talent. Why? Because your people are your number one asset. So today, we're going to be talking about how to do talent management right so that you can recruit, retain, and develop great team members. 
we're going to dig into how to approach hiring with a clear view of the challenges and opportunities across diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are going to agree to some rules of the road for talent retention. I think outside of that, everything else would be like really ambitious. So the way I run my sessions is I don't like to talk at you. And I recognize and I love the fact that you all are so polite. You're warm, you're caring, and you stare at me. So I want you to talk to me. If you have questions, interrupt me. I will not lose my place. Don't worry. Um, I'm really good at workshopping on the spot. And so since we have this time together, why don't we use it? Okay? All right. So let me tell you a little story. So I have always been the keeper of secrets. Anybody else in there have that? Keeper of secrets. A lot of fundraisers are like that. People tell us stuff. Do people just roll up to you and you find like in the first 30 minutes, you know all their business and you're like, oh, fascinating. I want to look away, but I can't. Right? That's me. And since I was a little kid, I have always been the girl that everybody runs to to tell their secrets. And in fact, I could tell several salacious tell-all books. You know, one day, one day, somebody's going to make me really upset. I'm going to write one. Um, but I have always realized that being able to be a secret keeper actually was a direct pathway to trust. In order for people to tell you their secrets, they have to trust that you will hold on to what they tell you, good, bad, or ugly. And it didn't occur to me when I was a little girl or a teenager or, frankly, when I first left school, but it started to occur to me when I became a manager that actually this secret-keeping thing had a lot of benefits. It had benefits for me when I talked to donors. It had benefits for me when other team members across other teams came to talk to me in confidence. And it had real value for me in building trusting relationships with my teams. And I looked up and I realized like, oh, I know a lot about the personal lives of the people that I worked with. And I had to figure out pretty early on how to not misuse that and how to leverage what I understood and leverage the trusting relationships to build affinity in the workplace. And it became really, really valuable for me as a manager because my team stick. And so I know we've all heard the statistics and <clears throat> I'm going to tell y'all a lot of my business today, okay? So I am the statistic. I have been in that revolving door many times throughout my career. I did not make it in several organizations past the two-year mark, so I am the study that people write about. But fascinatingly, my teams always stick. So something about what I was doing as a manager was allowing my team to learn how to raise money, how to be better marketing communication professionals, how to be more efficient in operations, such that they understood their roles enough and felt comfortable in culture enough to stick. So there was this thing, this fascination I had with sticky teams. And it boils down to this. Everything that we do as managers has to do with what I will continue to say is our number one asset, and that is our people. Nothing else we do, nothing else that we work on, Nothing else and no one else is more valuable to us than the people who work alongside us and the people who have trusted us with their professional careers, because essentially that's a part of the job. But talent management, and there are lots of fancy definitions. Kashana does not do any fancy definitions. I do things that you can remember when you're like driving in your car and you're like, oh, yeah, there was a song she was playing. It was three things that went to it so that you can remember when you're on your busy. 
and it falls into three areas. All I want you to think about when it comes to talent management is finding great people, hiring great people, and keeping great people. That's the job as a manager. The end. There's nothing else that happens. So everybody can just go ahead and we can all have breakfast. You know, I didn't have it today, so I'm really looking for some, like, scrambled eggs and a little... No, nobody? All right. It's okay. Later. So these are the three things we're going to focus on today. So why does hiring go wrong? Now, I have my reasons, but for, since everybody just about in here is a manager and has been charged with hiring, tell me, y'all, why does hiring go wrong? You, you have a top three? You feel on the spot? You filled the spot, okay? What's your top three? We often uh, make the mistake of assessing interview skills as opposed to skills that you're talking stuff. Ooh, fire! Okay, we make the mistake of assessing interview skills as opposed to the skills necessary to do the job. Hello. So if somebody's a good interviewer, you know, they sparkle in that interview. They're, they know exactly what to say. You, you guys have met those folks. I am that person. I know exactly what you're going to ask me. I'm great at behavioral interviews, but do I have the core competencies necessary to do this job? Okay, so that's, we're going to come back to that. That's awesome. Who else? Hi. So hiring for the wrong reasons? Ooh, what, what do you mean, hiring for the wrong reasons? Well, sometimes just through networks. Like, you get hired because you know somebody that works with the organization but you may not be the best fit. Yes, it's not what you know. It's who you know, and sometimes putting somebody in place because you know them may not be what's best for the organization. Excellent. One more. Anybody else? Tales from the field in the crib. What's your name? Fiona. Hi, Fiona. Sometimes um, what I've done in the past is I've maybe hired someone too much like myself. Ooh. And not looked at what the organization needs. So to fill those gaps and what you're looking for rather than think about... Oh, we connect so well. This is their best fit. The team and everything. Yeah. Forgetting what you really need. Confidence, what you don't have. Ooh, the like me syndrome. So somebody walks into the room and they remind you of somebody you like, your best friend, you and your <clears throat> less seasoned in the crock pot of life years. The you you wanted to be but couldn't because you were stressed out, got married early, had babies early or you had to take care of a parent, whatever the situation was, they remind you of you. So you stop looking at what the job requires and if that person actually aligns with that and you start getting really excited about cocktails at five. Okay, let's be honest, let's be honest, okay? So here are some reasons, so I love all of that. So here are some reasons that I have thought a lot about and that folks have told me and I've experienced that we actually um, see where hiring goes wrong. So the first one is, we rushed and we hired too fast. Not a great fit. I see some head nods in here. Expectations. Oh, you know, expectations, that's the death of a lot of people. Goals and resources. Not considering diversity, equity, and inclusion. And <clears throat> last but not least, you don't know how to keep people. So how do you find great people? So I want to go back a second um, before we do that, and we're going to dig into all of these today, but the things I want to focus on really quickly are rushing and hiring too fast. So oftentimes what happens is that Bob has retired. Kathy has decided she is taking up her pension and she is gone. All of a sudden, there's a huge hole on your team, and as a manager, what do you do? You scramble, and you're like, 
oh my God, I have to fill this position right now. And you don't think about what do we actually need at this moment in time, okay? The second thing is, we talked, fit is, we'll come back to the fit. You don't know how to keep your people, okay? <laughs> Hello, somebody. So we're gonna go through all of these, but I wanna just, on one and I wanna go on six. You don't know how to keep your people. We all think that we are fantastic managers. Yes, I would like to give myself A marks all the time, but there were some seasons in my management life where I just sucked. I was not focused, the work was too heavy, I was on the road too much, I was not paying attention in the ways that I needed to, and so therefore my decisions were colored with all of the activity that was happening. So, in order to find great people, I wanna talk about some stories of attraction. So there are four simple steps that I have thought about to find great people. Y'all ready? Okay, so now that Bob has left the organization and you are like, what do we do next? You have to figure out what you're really looking for. Oftentimes, we just wanna fill the hole, but this is actually an opportunity to look at your strategic plan, if y'all have one, because let's face it, some organizations do not have one. We're not gonna talk about that. That is not today's conversation. I am judging you just a little bit in love, okay. What are you really looking for now? Not today, but where do you need to go as a team over the next 18 months, over the next 24 months? Even if you don't have the resources just yet to fill those places, have you been able to have that vision to be able to think through where you actually need to go? You might be looking for someone who's gonna grow into a role and you're gonna staff that accordingly, but if you do that with a clear mind and very clear focus, you'll be better positioning the individual that you're bringing on your team. So what are you really looking for now? Where are you going? The second thing is you have to build a quality pool of candidates. So I'm going to talk about this here, and I'm going to talk about it again. You'll be like, Kashana is really serious about this quality pool. All right. It is not enough to have diversity as a catchphrase in your hiring process and think you've done a good job. Okay, no one's giving you hugs for that. You have to make sure that at every level of your interview process, from the first pool of applications that you get in to the first level of your screening, to when you have your semifinalists, to when you do your exercise, I'm gonna talk about that, to when you have your finalists, do you have a diverse and an inclusive pool of individuals who meet the core competencies for this role. And we're gonna dig into core competencies as well. It's not enough to say, well, you know, we tried. I mean, we had 10 black women at the beginning when we had 100 applicants, but nobody made it to the end. Not good enough. If you get to the middle of your search and you find that your pool starts to look just like everybody else in the organization, it doesn't matter to me if it's all women or all men, if it's all white, if you're in an organization that your ethnic or cultural background is, all, is, is that dominant culture for that organization, go back and start again. You are not done yet, okay? So that's something that's really important. Then test the work, which we'll talk about in a second. And lastly, making a sound decision. So let's dig in. One, figure out what you're looking for. So there are two ways that I go about thinking about this. I want you all to focus on the tangible and the intangible. We make a lot of decisions on intangible things. So it's really good to get clear on what the tangible versus the intangible look like for your organization. 
So here is the tangible. What is the hole you are filling and why? So going back to Bob retiring again, it's not enough to just want to have somebody on team because you're overwhelmed and busy. Why do you need that role over something else? And if you're not able to clearly articulate that why, then you're not ready to hire for that role. And that's okay. That might be a moment to take a step back and to then think about or maybe do some workshopping with your team. All right, y'all, where have we been underwater the most in the last 12 months? If you're a team of one or team of two, that might be having some conversations with your peers in finance or with your peers in program and saying, where are the places where I've come to you the most stressed out? or with the most last minute requests, or that I've seemed to be a little bit like, well, just get it done. Have them talk to you, have that conversation because you might begin to see, oh, I thought I needed to hire for a major gifts, but actually what I really need to hire for is this over here. So don't be afraid to have those conversations because the conversations will shape the job descriptions and the questions you're gonna ask and the candidates that you're gonna be seeking and the core competencies you're gonna need to develop for that role. How will this new role help your team achieve success? So one of the things that I got stuck in, and if you are in this boat too, just give me a head nod, I just got busy. I have people to see and things to do and my to-do lists are out the wazoo and I am going at 100 miles a minute. So I'm not really thinking about, bless you, I'm not really thinking about success, I'm thinking about finishing the day. Because that wine, you hear me, that wine? Okay, it's calling me, it's calling me. Okay, I wanna relax. So I'm thinking about how to get through the day. And so taking a step back as a manager to say, what does success actually look like for me this year? What does it look like this quarter? Heck, what does it look like today? Really understanding how that role is gonna help your team achieve success is really critical. So that's a good opportunity for you to go back and look at your development plan, to look at what you haven't done on that plan, if the plan is just on sticky notes, if there is no plan. It doesn't have to take you weeks and months. We don't need a committee to meet with the task force that meets with the meeting, that has the conference call, that writes the memo, that sends the pigeon. We don't have to do all of that, okay, y'all? It can be one Friday afternoon, shut the computer down at 11, go, I got to go analog when I do my thinking. Put up my white sheets, my papers on the walls, and start to scribbling and really kind of get your mind, put on your music, whatever you do to relax you or get you hyped up, and get your thinking hat on and start to put that stuff on paper. You'd be surprised at what you have been holding on to subconsciously, but you haven't been able to put in action because you're busy. And then, what are the hard skills necessary to be successful? Now, I know there's a lot of conversation, and I've seen and I've heard, and I'm so glad we're talking about it now, about what belongs in a job description. And I'll get into some of that because I have my own opinions about that as a hiring manager. But actually, what are the hard skills that one needs to be successful? Is it actually important that that particular top candidate has gone to one particular university over another as a hard skill? Is attending university a hard skill? Hmm, no. Okay. Is it really important that that person has closed seven-figure gifts if your organization actually needs to build affinity with prospects to become donors before they can close on gifts? Or is it more important that they understand how to do what? Build affinity. Because they're not going to get to a yes if the person doesn't align with what your organization is doing. And so if you don't work for an institution that has a grateful patient 
or a Grateful alum and you work for a social justice organization or an environmental organization or a youth serving organization and so forth and so on, where first you have to build affinity and then you have to cultivate and ask for the gift. It's actually not as important that the person has closed high level gifts. It's more important the person knows how to build and move to get to the close. And so what are the hard skills necessary to do that job? So that's something to be thinking about. Then the intangible, the soft stuff. What are the core competencies for this role? And I'm going to show you guys some core competency stuff. And I have some tools for you around core competencies um, that I'll share with you at the end of our session together. So some examples are adaptability, leadership, being a team player, open-mindedness. Really important if you're in an organization where things change all the time or you're in the middle of a change management exercise, or your organization is flat, and in flat organizations, they're really actually not flat, they're fake flat, okay? I just want to tell you, there's like a backdoor hierarchy nobody wants to talk about. Um, you need to have adaptability as a core competency because if somebody is very rigid, and that's fine, there are roles where that needs to be the case, where you're very um, focused on that, they're not going to survive. Maybe they need to have a leadership core competency because you're really looking for someone to take charge and grow into a particular body of work, and you want someone who's going to exercise a high degree of autonomy in their role. Or maybe you want a team player because it's a very collegial organization and you're still doing, I hope everyone's not doing this, but you're still doing consensus decision-making. Lord have mercy. I know there's a place for it, and I love organizations that can successfully do it, but it is hard work to do that kind of stuff. But you might need somebody who's a team player when you have to pinch hit for program, and you have to pinch hit here, and everybody works together to do things. That's the way you do business, and open-mindedness, and so forth. And so um, there's a lot of core competencies that are available, and I'm going to go through some more as we talk. But thinking about what are the actual tangible core competencies necessary for the role, because that is what you are hiring for. That's what you're putting in your job description. That is what you're going to be interviewing for when we get to that. So I want to give you guys an example. This is a real example I pulled off of LinkedIn. Okay, so chief external officer. So the question I'm asking is, what outcomes are they actually in charge of? Here's an example. Creating the strategic roadmap for how the organization interacts with the public and how the organization attracts resources to advance mission. So the reason that it's stated like that is every single person on your team, including you, is CEO of something. You are chief executive in charge of a thing. So what are you CEO of? So when you think about designing roles, what are they actually going to have responsibility for, not tasks and to-dos to do? Sorry to say to-do twice. So that's an example of that. That's the outcome. They're going to create the roadmap. And they're going to make sure that it's about how they interact with the public. So that's all of that external relations and how we attract resources. That's the charge. That's the overlying, the top line thing. So then what are the job responsibilities? And so example, external meetings, cultivation events, staff management, annual report. Those are some of the responsibilities that this individual has. How should they approach the role? That's task driven and should not be in a job description. Because it's up to the individual who you're hiring. Because remember, you're hiring for competence, right? So you shouldn't have somebody at the chief external officer position who, hasn't, who doesn't actually have the competencies to do that job and hasn't done it. So assuming that you're interviewing people who actually have done this role 
or are stepping up into this role and have done similar things around it, they should have some freedom for the roadmap of how the work gets done because they are charged with the roadmap. So if you're giving them the roadmap in the job description, then what roadmap are they actually creating? They're just driving on the road. Examples of how they might approach that road, the role, donor-facing meetings, collaboration between the board and other teams, intentional relationship building. They may have other ideas. They may want to take it in a different direction. But you have to have a framework that sets up an individual so that they have a clear way that they should be thinking about what they're in charge of, but have some freedom for how they get the job done. That's what really gives people that charge and that feeling of ownership in their work from day one. That's that passion and stuff, particularly if you are in a role where maybe you can't pay, your compensation is not set up the way other organizations are. Maybe you're not as competitive um, from that framework, but you have other things that are awesome. Setting them up so that they are in charge at every level of the team is a way to make sure that people are owning their work. And you do that before you even start talking to candidates. Okay, can everybody see that? If you can't, just focus on the red boxes. Okay, so up here, this is what I pulled out. Qualifications, bachelor degree required. Why do we need that? Okay, all right, a little bit of rhetorical. I'm not here for it. Why do we need it? Um, and then it goes down to say the summary, the VP of philanthropy will report to the chief development officer team to secure foundation and government support for the leading mentoring organization in the country. All right, that's fine. That's not what the job is. That's who the person reports to. So it shouldn't be set up as a job summary. It's reporting structure. Okay. Under responsibilities, I put a little blue thing here. This is actually a list of tasks and responsibilities mixed together. And so when you're seeing retain and grow existing portfolio, foundation and government partnerships, steward and solicit prospects, blah, 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 manage the grant cycle, prospect research identification, it's just all over the place. And so if you go back to the previous slide, making sure that you understand what are their actual responsibilities, and then you may have some ideas about approach. That's a great conversation to have in an interview. That's how you can move to that, move past that like me and start to have that good conversation. How is their approach lining up to where things are in the organization? Are you looking for something new and fresh? Are you looking for the status quo? Neither things are wrong, but making sure you understand what that's about. Okay, it's a little bit smaller, focus on the blue boxes. So this is a job description by a search firm that I love. The way that they set this up is all the fun facts up top. So up here it says, when the organization is established, number of employees, the budget, the school leaders, the impact, boom, right up there in the front. Then it tells you what the application process is right there. So you know exactly what to expect as a candidate. Then they tell you the salary range, the benefits, the start date, the location. Remember back to the other one where it says your summary, but it was really who your reporting structure is. Who's your team? Who do you report to and who do you have? And then it lines out your charge which is that top-line responsibility, what you're CEO of. The reason I love this is because it lays out for a potential candidate in a snapshot essentially what the charge is for the role, who they're going to be talking to and working with, what success looks like up front. It fits in the same exact page format as the one before it, and a candidate can decide, a potential candidate can decide before they even talk to you as an organization, oh, I'm in this to win this, oh, I got this. Oh, this might be a stretch. Let me think about the ways I want to talk about this. But they have it up front. We're transparent because we've thought through what it is we want to do in order to be successful in order to have somebody come in successfully. Any questions about that? 
Um, there is a thing about our sector where we don't like to tell people how much we're going to pay them. I hate it. I always tell people how much we're going to pay. Why? Because when you sat down with budget and you didn't go, you know, if we find the right person, we'll figure it out. Uh, your finance team is not here for any of that foolishness. Okay? You know your salary band or you know what your cap is for what you can pay a soul. So take that extra step if your organization doesn't have official salary bands and things like that that you can follow and be transparent. We are offering 60000 to 80000 for this role. When it can- Every candidate, there's not a one in this world that's not going to go, that's going to say, oh, I think I'm at the 60. Uh, no, no one does that. Everybody's at the 80, right, in their mind. So when you start to have conversations, you already should have a rubric that says, um, we offer candidates in the 60,000 range when they have this type of experience and they have demonstrated proficiency in these competencies. We offer candidates in the $70,000 range, could be 71, 75, whatever, when they have this type of experience and this type of proficiency in their core competencies. We offer candidates 80 or close to 80 um, because we want to have room for being able to give cost of living increases or we know that if we have some stretch opportunities next year, we can grow into 85. Be transparent. Negotiation doesn't have to be a secret. A good fundraiser should negotiate. And actually, if you get a candidate that gets to the end of offer and does not negotiate, hello, I would be giving some questions. And I know there is a gender bias, or particularly toward women, that we don't negotiate. And typically when we negotiate, the more we negotiate, the more the expectations get ratcheted up. Negotiate anyway. Okay? And so being able to be transparent about what the position requires, what are going to be some of the nuances up front, that, this, you can have a whole two, three, four interviews just off this one job description and keep digging in further and further. And so I want you guys to feel free to start thinking about it in that way. And this is from Ofer Walker Group. Um, Ify Walker is the CEO for this search firm that does her process this way. Okay, and then don't get tripped up. Separate the must-haves from the nice-to-haves. And so a lot of times in job descriptions, I see nice-to-haves. It'd be nice if you had a car. If they have to travel significantly for work, are you providing transportation for them for the work? If they have to have a car, are you compensating them for their mileage and their upkeep of their vehicle? Are you providing a transportation for them if their vehicle breaks down, et cetera? Separate the must-haves from the nice-to-haves and make sure that you know if you see that your job description typically has lots of nice-to-haves. I'll give you an example. Um, must be proficient in Salesforce, Razor's Edge, Donut Perfect, Bloomerang. Why are you naming five CRMs? I actually am proficient in lots of them, but I've had to do database you know, migrations. But unless you have a database migration position in which you want someone who has had an experience of migrating multiple data, as long as they know how to use something, everybody has to go and do the training, okay? And chances are, most of us don't know how to use the system that we're asking people to know how to use either. (laughs) Okay, we all could use a training module or two or three. So that's a nice to have, not a must have. The competency is technological proficiency and aptitude for technology. Or the competency might be around data because what you really need is somebody who understands how to read the data that you put into your database or how to enter it properly and interpret it or how to do forecasting, et cetera. You see where I'm going with that? So really thinking about what you need it for before you put it on a job description. 
I'm giving y'all a lot of work before you even put that piece of paper up and press submit on LinkedIn, right? Or indeed, it's a lot of work. The work happens before you start talking to people. Get rid of all autopilot requirements. Now, I know that's going to be big news for some of us. It's real shaky. We're used to saying the college degree, the five years of experience, or this, to that. There is nothing wrong with having experience for a particular role. For example, if you are hiring for an assistant role, assistant roles typically are directed work. If you're hiring for an associate role, and that is the most junior role on your team, then you're typically looking at directed work. So the probability that someone is going to apply for that role with more than five years of experience in that particular vertical is low. So we shouldn't have year requirements because it's an assistant or associate role. Most people who are going to apply are junior or career switching or whatever. When you start looking at director roles and you start looking at VP roles, senior director roles, managing director roles, typically you're looking for certain experiences that they have had. They might have had that in their first two years of work if they worked for a social venture, for example, in the U.S. So my, most of the money that I've raised have been through social ventures, which are typically less traditional nonprofit organizations. We do these like huge growth campaigns. We're like, raise $25 million in the next nine months, go. Like That's the way I've raised money. So it's a little bit different. So my ability to put up numbers that's outside of a traditional campaign without feasibility study, closing six and seven figure gifts, is very different than someone who has raised money in an institution or a different type of organization. So getting really clear on why do you need 10 to 12 years? Is, has something happened in that 10 to 12 years? If so, name it. What are the type of experiences that that individual would have had over the course of that time And is that necessary for this person in this role to be successful? If yes, elevate that. So just really being more thoughtful about when you start putting in these um, these give me's, these these autopilot requirements. Some more of them, cultural fit. First of all, I don't know if they're going to fit here as a part of our culture. Let me just wake you up to your bias. Okay, friends, this jacket doesn't really fit. No, it does fit. It does fit. It does fit. My daughter said it doesn't fit, but it does fit. Culture, you want people who are different from you, who make your coat fit a little bit uncomfortable, who are going to help elevate the work you're doing because the difference is where the innovation happens. When we start hearing things like, I don't know if they'll fit here. Really? What does that mean exactly? If you can't, I can't name it. I can't put my finger on it. That means you don't have well-articulated organizational values. And if you don't, then guess what you've just inserted, my friends? All your bias. And so the minute you hear that even start to form in your mouth and step away, because that is where you start to you start to introduce bias. Passion for the mission. This is all Kashana opinion. It is not fact. Okay, I'm of the school of fundraisers that I do not believe that you initially start out passionate for your mission. You know what Kashana is passionate about? My baby, Jesus and fundraising. I love fundraising. I could raise money for just about anything. Now, will I stay for different missions that I may not have as much of an affinity to, maybe not. But for most of us, loving the work is the start. And then over time, you grow to love the mission when you see it, what? In action. That's why you got to get out into the field. You have to work with program. You have to make sure you get your hands in it. If you haven't done a site visit in the last six months, you better do that this week. Next week. Next week. This week is for you. Okay? Making sure you're having your hands in the work. Then you start to develop that passion for mission. Some folks have had an experience that starts them on passion, but making passion a requirement to me feels a little bit unfair. Everybody doesn't start out passionate about 
food insecurity when I never had that. But when you get into the work, you're like, I'm super passionate about the fact that families don't have access to this stuff. You can have passion about an experience that's not your own lived experience, but you learn it over time. Okay, let me try to miss anything on that. Um, we talked about prior experience in college degrees. Okay, we're good, we're good. All right, so now we're going to do marketing. So we've spent a lot of time talking a little bit about making sure you're set up well before you even go out and write a job description. Question. Absolutely. Of course. So when you're thinking about your marketing must-haves, really thinking about what do you want your organization or your institution What's your presence that you want to have when candidates are looking for you on the internet or when they come to an AFP meeting or when they look you up on LinkedIn or when they weirdly somehow go to your website even though you've posted it nowhere else? So what are you thinking about when you are writing your job description? The first thing is making your organization enticing for the individuals who are going to be applying for this role. What's exciting about this opportunity for your fundraising team? Where are you right now in terms of your development season and experience that makes this role challenging, exciting, new, stable? Everybody is looking for something a little bit different. So what makes your organization stand out? It's perfectly Perfectly acceptable to put that front and forth. This is an exciting time in our institution's history as we are just about to embark upon a new campaign that we have never done before. So we're looking for folks who are excited about rolling up their sleeves and who bringing new ideas to the table and working long hours, you know, or, you know putting in the work, however you would capture it. Or um, our organization has experienced change in leadership. And so at this inflection point, we're looking for individuals who are excited about change management who have had some experience with or are looking for an opportunity to get in on the rebuilding or the ground floor or the resetting of priorities of our organization. Now, work with the marketing people to make it a little bit more fancy for your organization, whatever your wording is, but essentially putting forward why it's amazing to work here. We have great people. Our people are fun. If your organization is a learning institution, you know, we have like, we believe in lifelong learning. Whatever it is that makes your place a great place to work outside of Benny's, put that forward in your marketing materials. Making sure that you have clarity around your job responsibilities and must-haves. So I look at fundraising job descriptions every single week. Um, lots of my friends who are recruiters will send me job descriptions and say, would you apply for this job if you saw it? And most of the time I go, what the hell kind of job is this? <laughs> There's five Six, seven different jobs written in the one job. Now, I know we are superstars, okay? There is, without a doubt, there's no question in my mind. We show up and we show out. However, back to the beginning of my talk when I said, why are we filling this role? What's the hole we're trying to fill? And what does success look like for our team? So where are we going in our fundraising shop? That gets you very clear when you're starting to write your job description that you might start out with the kitchen sink, but you have to get right down to a very, 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 very a la carte meal, okay? So we're not doing poutine, okay? We're doing a la carte, 
Okay, and so really thinking about that. So how many of you all have written a job description for a new team member in the last 12 months? How long did it take you to write it? Let's go with your gut. How long? A full day, a week. Five, five minutes? Wow. Okay, I'm gonna come back to that. I don't know that. Okay, you said somewhere in between? Okay. What was the hardest part about writing the job description? Go ahead. Speaking English often. Usually, there's a trend in our world to use jargon. Mm-hmm. And I think a big challenge for me in writing is to speak plainly and to get to the gist of what we're really trying to accomplish in two paragraphs. Totally. It is very challenging. Very, very challenging. You say five minutes because I've spent decades writing this and in the early days it would take, Mark Twain would say it takes more time to write briefly than it does to write long. Absolutely. So, yeah, to speak like a human being in a job description, no one does it anymore. I feel like I'm a maverick and I'm not. I'm just trying to speak like a human being. Yes, absolutely. So speaking to tell, explaining what we do plainly. Um, we find ourselves talking in circles to your point. I agree with that. Um, okay, someone else on what was the hardest part about writing? So speaking plainly, excellent. For us, it was uh, about the organization. We were going through our own shift. So making sure that was clear when it really wasn't even if you worked there. So there was that. Yeah. And then trying to decide what you really needed in that job when there were so many things that you could throw in there that you wanted them to be able to do everything. Absolutely. So the organization is going through a shift that sometimes even internally, team members are like, we know there's a shift happening. What is the shift? We don't know. It's Tuesday. I don't, I don't know. Um, and so being able to be clear and not want an individual to do everything. You raise your hand. Yeah. And then I start. We were looking for someone. We run a call center. So we have to hire like five people at the same time. So we want to make sure that we're hiring the right person that will fit this contact center all of the different Duties that felt yeah. scary because there's an outbound component to it, an inbound component, so that part is tough. But also looking for someone who's got the same core values as us mm -hmm. and is looking for something. Our challenge is it's a temporary role that could be permanent, so it's really hard to find someone that's going to want to long term. Yeah. Someone who's interested in the organization that is willing to kind of work in the organization and call center for a while. Absolutely. So a role that is temporary to permanent, where there's a persona match, a skill match, and a values match that's necessary, which is tough when you're thinking about temporary workers who are like, I'm just trying to come to work on Monday for this holiday season. I don't, I don't understand all this stuff. And so how do you balance that and also find somebody who might be interested in staying? Okay, that's great. And then you had one? Yeah, it's very similar to what you said. Um, we find it challenging when you're trying to capture all the nuances yeah. of the role so that when someone steps into the role, they don't think that that was nothing close yes. to on there, right? Absolutely. The fundraising speakeasy, right? Yes. Put all this jargon in here, and then they sit down and they're like, well, this is not anywhere close. So it's making sure that it resonates with the actual work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that work tends to happen if we focus on that before we actually write the role. And so I found myself sitting down having to write for, I think one of the hardest roles I had to write for, but the most fun to hire for was 
we had a fancy title at this organization, but essentially it was our grant manager or grant writer. And this individual had to be responsible for both writing the grants, writing development copy, and managing relationships with foundations. Mm-hmm. It's a whole lot going on. And I didn't have the luxury at that point of being like, we're not doing that. We're only going to pick two of these three things. I was like, uh, okay, I guess I'll figure that out. So I was like, I have to think about this in an out-of-the-box way. And so I wrote the job description to talk about someone who is excited about words. And so when I described the position, I said, you are excited about humans and about words and how words affect people. You understand how to craft stories, how to see data as stories, and how to make that come alive for folks you'll sit down and have conversations with. That didn't even sound like a job description. That sounds like I'm just writing some intro narrative. You know who I hired? A newspaper reporter. And my CEO said to me, if this doesn't work out, me and you. Because she was like, who the heck is hiring somebody who's been a news reporter? She was an education reporter. We were an education organization. I said, she's got to know how to get stories out of anybody and get anyone to talk to her. And so we have to get foundation folks who are not necessarily interested in talking to us initially to talk to us. You have to be able to tell stories to basically pull blood from stone sometimes in terms of data and how we're going to tell it. You need somebody who knows how to do that investigative work, and they think in that manner. Well, she is now VP of development, started as a grants manager, moved up, then moved to a different organization as director of development, senior director, and now she's VP. Amazing. And when I saw her last promotion, I sent her a note, and I said, gosh, I'm so proud of you to see the work that you're doing. And she was like, if you didn't give me that start, you know? So, but really having a clear sense of what the job actually is when it comes down to brass tacks for you to be able to explain it for yourself when you're hiring your fundraisers, whether you're thinking on the internal side for operations, for data, for grant writing, for alumni engagement, if you're starting to move to the middle, for external folks who are looking at major gifts or planned giving or looking at our corporate partners, volunteer management. When you think about the essence of the role, what are they actually charged to do? That's what you write about. So in your case, in thinking about change management, you're like, we are at an exciting time for our organization where things are shifting, like the plates under the earth. You know, I'm very dramatic, very flourishing in my writing. Um, And we're looking for someone, you know, you are an individual. I tend to write like you are the person that we are an organization that. So you are an individual that thrives in some level of ambiguity. If you have your North Star, you are fine with navigating through sometimes foggy water. Um, the position looks like this. So I'm, I might, if I had more time, I'd come back and kind of tighten up a little bit. But essentially, you're describing, if you think about how movies are done, if you close your eyes and you think about the description of a movie, you're walking down the street. I'll do a better one. You're driving down um, a seaside road with the breeze blowing through your hair and your scarf flying in the back of you. The air is humid and warm and your face is flush from the mangoes you smell. If you close your, I just did that just now. If you close your eyes and you thought about it, you're like, yes, breeze, mangoes, Caribbean air, sea salt. You know, I'm thinking about my hair is going to be a fro. Oh, my gosh. Um, But when you think about your descriptions, have some fun with that. Like you want someone to read that and go, oh, heck, yeah, I want to go find out more about that. It doesn't have to be fanciful as I'm making it, but it can be in plain spoken about what their challenge is and what the opportunity is. And you would better, you better believe it. There are folks who are going to opt in to a challenge. They want that right now. They're bored. They want something different. Or they are folks who are opting out. They're like, oh, no, thank you. 
I'm here for these uh, still waters. Thanks. And if your organization provides that, say that. Okay. And then enticing great potential candidates versus deterring them. I have seen so many job descriptions for fundraisers that sound like a tone, a warning, a memo, a performance improvement plan, if it were. I mean, it just sounds like don't apply here. You're not welcome here. No thank you for here. Don't come. Beware. Like I've seen so many things and I'm sure some of us have inadvertently written them that way. You need to have and a candidate must have. It's depersonalized, it's not warm, it feels very sterile, but we are warm, typically happy, whether you're introverted or extroverted, personable people, but we're writing as if we're machines. Question. Can I just do something funny? Sure. On this point. Yes. We've just spent two months um, on a recruitment campaign, starting on our website, and I just want to tell you the taglines that came in from the Tell me. We're hiring. Probably not you, but still, we're hiring. <laughs> um, so snarky. Your LinkedIn connections can't help you with this job opportunity. Um, there's more. Uh, subject at Boundless, the job you're probably not going to get. So the idea for us is we want to stand up with humor and satire. Yes. Because there's so much noise. Yes. Um, it's interesting. I think that our approach reinforces your point, but turns it... It turns it on its head. No clue how this is going to... Test it. I have no clue. You're going to attract people. People, um, and then we'll have this, we have this chat bar, which is all... The theme was, hit the applicant where it doesn't hurt you. So we'll make fun of their schooling, we'll make fun of their experience if they um, were a nature-based program. So if they don't like shitting in the woods, we'll make fun of I love every minute of that. I have no clue if this is going to work. I mean, the people who you're going to attract are going to be folks who are snarky. And so if... With teens, that's... Th that snark is going to land very well, right? It's what you want with teens, actually. Ah, okay. Relate to snark. Not be put off by stuff. Uh huh. So I, that's awesome. I mean, I personally love stuff like that because I just like very like sharp, catchy marketing. I think is going to attract a very specific type of candidate. There are going to be some folks who are going to see that and be like, "What in the heezy freezy?" Me, on the other hand, I'd be like, "I cannot believe they did that." Let me click and see what this is about. You know, because <laughs> I just because I'm just like, who are they? Had the nerve to write? Let me see. Let me see. Um, that's the marketer in me. I just want to know, like, who was the person that put that together? Um, but if when you click in, then there's like something that's like funny and warm and look, glad we got your attention. Here's who we're about. Then I think that's great. Um, so I would love to see how that tests. Favorite person is the most brilliant thing I've heard and has made this session. I'll walk away with that more than anything. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I believe very deeply in taking risks with individuals because I, I believe so deeply in people and that you find talent in the most unlikely places. And it's just that, thank you. That's one of the best hires I've ever done. So I appreciate that. You were going to make a comment? Sure. Question's great. I love the idea of doing really marketing for a role. However, when the HR department goes, hang on a second. Yeah. This is not in line with our corporate identity. Yeah. I work in the university. Yes. 
Totally. For us, we want to find people that are not, um, and no offense to anybody here, that are not traditional fundraisers. Yes. Our whole department, none of us had a fundraising background, and yet we've achieved really great success. And we want to keep that trajectory going. Totally. Providing the unusual. So I think there are two things that are happening. One, um, my question is around relationship with HR. So for those of us who have to stay within the confines of the branding and you have to put the to-do here, the VP there, the that there, fine. Try, you know, I try to, to ride the line as close over as I can get on all things, okay? But then to be able to have the conversation to say the types of folks we want to attract are folks who came in similarly to how we did. We're all very different that's what binds us together, and we're not going to attract the kind of talent that we think will continue to move us forward if we do it this way. So how much wiggle room do we get to see how much parameters you might be able to get? It might be word choices, but still in the same format, um, some keywords. Here's where you have much more freedom in your own social media networks. And we're going to get to that when we start talking about retention. The way in which you position how you promote the role, what I see the most folks go is, hey, I'm hiring, apply here. Who are you and who cares? Um, if it's to your own network and you want to be outside your network, who are you? So there's a place that I would want to write. I work at a really amazing place and we're looking for new roles in these particular things in development. Here's what I think is super exciting about it. If you want to talk to me about it, DM me, click here and find out more about it. I'm happy to talk. So making yourself more available. We'll jump into that more now. One of the other things that I do um, with clients and I have done as a hiring manager is I love video content. And so I'm going to do this again for a role I'm hiring for. I just make a video about why I'm hiring. And I'm like, here's why this role is exciting. Here's what you're going to be doing. Here's what the day is going to look like. And I'm fine. Um, here's what the challenge is going to be. I'm looking for you if you possess these competencies or if you have these qualities, talk to me. And so just really making that engagement more personal in the ways that you can. So just figuring out what that is. So hopefully that'll help. And I'm, I'm going to think about that a little bit more to figure out that. But I know lots of us have to like ride the line in how our organization has set things up. But I want to encourage you all to just, you know, we're fundraisers. We kind of, we push the edges a little bit when we need to, to get things done. Okay. So then the second thing is to build your pool. So we're going to jump back into that a little bit more. So we all, I hope, are looking for more than just lip service, a diverse pool by race by gender, by ability, by orientation, and everything else in between, all the things that matter to us because our donors are changing by the minute and we want to make sure that we are not doing what we've done for many years in other parts of our sector, catching, catching up and playing catch up. Okay, so here's some of the data. This is from the Voice of Nonprofit Talent. 30% of employees believe their organization values diversity. 70% believe that their employer does not do enough to create a diverse and inclusive work environment. And 71% of employees of color attempt to evaluate a prospective employer's commitment to diversity during the interview process. And lots of times it starts with the optics. We're going on your website. We're looking at your people. We're like stalking you on LinkedIn. Everybody should be doing some version of that. And if we don't see anybody that looks like us, or we don't see some breadth and some depth or some attempt at, being, at approaching difference in a really healthy way, guess what? We're out of there. 35% of people of color who examine diversity during the hiring process report withdrawing or declining a job offer during a perceived lack, due to a perceived lack of diversity and inclusiveness. I've done it. 
Lots of my friends have done it. Lots of us in this room might have done it. If you don't feel like you're going to fit in or have space or have agency, you're not staying. Okay, so how do you build the pool? One, leveraging the power of LinkedIn. So LinkedIn does not pay me, so this is not an ad. Um, but we, LinkedIn, when I first was on LinkedIn like 10 years ago, I feel like it was just like, oh, a place for some of my business contacts for us to connect. And you just did it. And I was excited like, oh, I hit 200. Oh, I hit 300. Oh, 400, you know. But it's actually a really powerful tool, just like you can learn about your donors. You can learn about potential candidates, you, even when you're not looking for a role, okay? That you should always be networking and looking out there and seeing who's doing that work. And oh, I think next year we're going to hire for a new um, major gift officer. Who's out there in the market close and around to where you live? They may not be looking, but they're out there. Can you get to know them? Get out to your professional organization meetups. AFP is great. Some of us belong to other professional organizations. Join them. Go. Network. One of the biggest things that I regret is that when I stepped out into consulting full-time this last time, I realized I had lots of relationships. All of them were shallow. They were like kiddie pool, waiting pool shallow. I hadn't done enough at conferences, at meetups, at AFP lunch meetings to start to develop deeper relationships. So lots of people knew me-ish, but they didn't know what I did. They didn't know what my organizations did. They didn't know my skills outside of the fact that I was a fundraiser. And so making sure that you're going to those things so you continue to have folks in your network um, when you're thinking about new opportunities. Say yes to the next invitation for an informational interview. I never say no. I don't care how busy I am. I would do it on, if I'm like, well, I can only talk to you on Sunday at 9.30 before I go to service. Well, I can talk to you then too. Great. Here's my number. Why do I do that? Because every opportunity to continue to increase the number of young people or professionals who are staying in our profession is an opportunity for us. And so I take it. I have questions that I want them to have ahead of time. So I've come up with a little format. Like, here are the questions we're going to talk about in your informational interview. Here's what I need to get ahead of time for me to be prepared to talk to you because we only have this amount of time. And let's make it count. So I'm not just lollygagging on the phone. And then expand your network with purpose. And so this is being intentional with who's in your network. If you do a, a quick call of who's in your cell phone, the first 100 people, uh, who's on your Facebook friends, who's in your LinkedIn network, and everybody looks like you or everybody's in the same line of work as you, my friends, you have some work to do. Guess what? Me included. If I did a way back machine to my personal network three years ago, four years ago, to what it is now, it is like literal night and day. Because I actually had to take my own advice and be intentional in stepping into different networks and putting myself out there and being vulnerable and making those connections. Okay, test the work. So how many of you all do some sort of like test or exercise, we tend to call them, when you're hiring for candidates in your job search, in your job process? Okay, some folks. So here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes I see that we do phone screen, interview, interview somebody else, maybe interview somebody else, reference check, get the job. Then six months in, you're like, why didn't he work out? They weren't a good fit. Test the work that they're actually going to do. That's how you test the competency. Now, I don't mean take their intellectual property. So here's how I test the work. If you're in an organization and you're hiring for an event planner, for example, or event manager or alumni engagement manager, et cetera, and you have an event you do every year, pull up an example of one you've already done. And then talk, ask them to talk through or write out through or plan through how they would shift the event, grow it, 
increase the numbers, what they see as things that they would identify that are flags for them. Pick any kind of example. You do the exact same test for every candidate that's going to make it to finals. What it allows you to do, same with major gifts. Have them come in and do a scenario and a role play with you. Have everyone do the exact same one. It goes beyond doing, when was the last time you got a gift that closed for so-and-so? No, we're going to workshop a particular donor scenario that we actually have. And let's see how they work through how they would handle it. What you're looking for is their approach. If you're thinking about another role, grant writing, don't ask them to do a writing sample of work that you've done already. If you want to see them write, sure, have them do a timed writing example from something you've already won. Give them the background they need. We've already won this. Here's a winning proposal. How would you rework this proposal for a funder who has these guidelines? Make sure it's a funder you're not actually applying to. Make sure it's a funder you've already applied to. So then you're not taking their intellectual property. And test the work. So you can do that in every aspect of every role you're hiring for in development where you actually pull a piece of the work. So change management's a good one. So bring up a, a real scenario that is happening right now and workshop that with every candidate who's going to make that to finals. Because you're not looking for the right answer. You're looking for the approach that's going to work where your organization is and where your organization is going. Doesn't mean it has to be the same. It means it has to align with where you're trying to go. So if you haven't done testing the work as a part of your process, include that in your process. These are how I look at core competencies. I have a document I'll share with you guys about that. So I'm sorry to just cut off here. So it has things like accountability, adaptability, analytical thinking, attention to communication, attention to detail, building collaborative relationships, conceptual thinking, comfort with technology, we talked about with data, continuous learning. Then I decide if they're must-have for the roles or if they're nice-to-have for the roles. And I want to make sure that I have at least six to eight competencies, but only four are going on the job description. So that means at least two or three are going to be nice-to-have. And so I line that up so that I know what I'm looking for and I'm not deviating by candidate on feelings. Then I ask behavioral questions based on competencies in the job interviews. And everyone gets the same questions. So all this work that I'm showing you guys about bringing folks on happens before you ever touch a candidate. So everybody who's going to be a part of the process, they have their questions ahead of time. They know what questions they're going to be asked. They're going to be asking. They know what the rubric and the score is. Yes, it takes more time. But guess what? When you do it the first time, then you have the framework to do it over and over again. Okay. And so if stakeholder management is a competency, then one of the questions I might ask is what, in your opinion, are the key ingredients in guiding and maintaining successful donor relationships? Give examples of how you've made these work for you in the past. So you don't have to think up all the questions. You actually have clear questions you ask for the competencies you're seeking to test for. Okay. And then make a sound decision. A lot of times we wiffle waffle. We want 3711 references. Every time I apply for a job, I start with three references. Then they want four references. Then they want five. Pick the number that every candidate is going to get and why. If they're a manager managing people, they should have a direct report. They should have a peer and they should have a manager. Okay. Like think about what you need it for. Focus on that. Do not deviate from that so that everybody has an equitable opportunity to be able to um, have a chance at that role. And know that references are supposed to be good. So how much weight are you putting on that? If you did all the work you did in your interviewing process, then you've put more weight on the process itself and the folks in the room. And then the reference check is, you know, throw them in the cap. Hiring great people. So what happens after the yes? Any questions before we move on?
Okay, so we spent a lot of time on what you do to get people in the room. Now folks are in the room and we're like, what do we do with our friends? Oh my gosh, they said yes. This is like the best ever. So what do you do after your team member says yes? Okay, I'm good on time. Your team member says yes. Okay, so now I want to think about retention stickiness. You know, when I was making my slides, I was hungry. And so I, <laughs> I tend to have food references when I'm, when I'm making slides I'm hungry. So thinking about that sticky bun, that retention stickiness, what's going to get your folks to stick after you've done that work? Because you've done a heck of a lot of work setting your friends up, making sure candidates are coming in, making sure you've marketed well, making sure you've made the position plain. You've done a heck of a lot of work because you've gotten your stakeholders internally on board. What do you do now? So you have to make sure that you have access to professional development for your team. And here's how it breaks down. 70% of professional development comes from stretch projects, meaning that all those projects you have in your to-do list, the bike rack, you know, the parking lot, the sticky notes that are in the back of your planner that you're like, one day I'm going to get to it. Stretch projects live there. In an intentional way, when you work through planning with your team, then you're able to give out stretch projects, and we'll come back to that. 20% is mentorship and sponsorship, which means that not just a mentor, someone who can show somebody the ropes, can really give it examples about how things are, can really help an individual grow, but sponsorship, someone who is going to open doors for your team member to move up and on in their career. Okay, so that's how that goes. And then 10% is from professional development, which are conferences like that. So there are four things I want us to focus on when we think about how to retain our teams. One is clear and thorough onboarding. The next is time to see, learn, and do. I call this eat the cake, taking slices in management and check-ins for success. So first, let's talk about thorough onboarding. Onboarding starts before you post the position. So when, just like when you plan an event, the event goes two weeks, three weeks past the event. When you're planning, it's the same thing with hiring. When you sit down to do the job description and you sit down to think about who is going to be interviewing and you think, sit down to think about timing and pacing, you sit down to think about what happens when you negotiate. Then you think about what that individual is going to need to come on board and who needs to be involved so that you're really intentional about making sure that even if they're jumping into the deep end, because they're jumping right into the end of a campaign, end of year, event is three weeks out, sometimes we can't help that, that they have an onboarding process that is clearly thought out and it honors the work that they have to do. So making sure that they have time to be able to do that. So you have to do that work. You have to go talk to their peers. So when I do onboarding, if I'm bringing on a director, I go to talk to the director in programming, not the chief program officer. I go to talk to the director in operations. I go to talk to the director in finance, everybody who's at their peer level. Because guess what? I want to set my team up for success so they have their peers coming in the door. That's their crew. Then... I make sure that HR paperwork is just that. That is not onboarding, okay? That's making sure people can get paid and get their health and their dental and all the good things in order. So that's just matter of fact. Then I make sure that there's an opportunity for them to really step into the work alongside their peers and by themselves. And that's in time to see, learn, and do. So I plan time for my team members in their first 30 days. So onboarding for me goes 100 days. And really goes your first year, to be quite honest, in terms of really stepping into the organizational culture and into the working norms and into practices, but to get them very cemented in their first 100 days. So for the first 30, I schedule out most of their schedule. There's some wiggle, but most of the schedule scheduled out. Time in the field, time to shadow for donors, 
time to go out on cultivation ask with another team member, time to be able to come back and ask questions, time to do it themselves, time to think. All of that is scheduled out. Why? Because when you step into a new role, you are already overwhelmed just by being here. You're like, uh-huh, they just gave me all of these notebooks and said, go forth and prosper. Or somebody just puts a computer in front of you and goes, everything you need is right here on the drive. Is there a nomenclature? Is there a naming convention? Is there anything for this? Nothing. So setting them up well ahead of time when you're doing the search allows you to be like, oh, heck, you know, I talked to these six people. You know, we're going to need to add in. They're going to need time to be able to dig into the proposals that we've done over the last 12 months. Let me make sure I schedule time. Let me make sure I know where those documents are so that they can go and grab them and do them. Who is the person they're going to check in with after when they have questions about that piece? So just being intentional, that's the kind of work when I do onboarding, it takes me a week, more or less, to pull it together, and I pull it together at the same time I'm doing the job description, et cetera. Because as I'm writing it, I'm like, oh, they're going to have to talk to Bill. Okay, they're going to have to talk to this person. So I get it together then and give them time to see, to learn, and to do. And then I call this taking slices. So I build in time for us to do a, a step back. So it's time on their calendar that I have specifically to check in with them over the course of their 90 days. That's not their one-on-one. So if they're stepping into a new project or they're stepping into the, they're jumping into the deep end or stepping right into campaign, we're stepping right into end of quarter, they're stepping right into a portfolio, I have an opportunity on their calendar at intervals. So it could be every two weeks, it could be every week, depending on the kind of work you're doing, or if you're hiring associates or assistants, that's directive work. So more frequently for your directors and up, less frequently for them to be able to say, I have some questions. Um, I want to be able to dig in about this area specifically, not just how you're doing, but about the work. If you build in this muscle of taking slices, you'll do that for all of the work with all of your team members, even when they're not new. So that when you're giving, off a, giving over a new project or you're turning over new work to a temporary team member, et cetera, you'll say, great, you started on Monday. So I want you to know, as we think through this plan, I'm going to step in two weeks from now. Here's what I'm going to want to see. I'm going to be looking for this, for this, for this. And if you have questions or you're running into some roadblocks, I want to know by this date. What that does for you is it gives you a clear sense of where you're going to step in as a manager And it allows you to then step away without being completely hands off. And for those of us who like to have our hands on everything, that lets you keep your hands on it without keeping your hands in it, if that makes sense. And so taking slices. And then lastly, check-ins for success. I talked about this a little bit yesterday if you were in my my session. What this is, is really having a clear way to consistently check in with all of your team members. I use something I call check-in magic which is basically a form that I use that allows you to do a couple of things ahead of time. It allows your team member to say, what are the big rocks that they're working on? Not the pebbles. We want the big rocks, the big things, three, uh, because three is my favorite number. I always say three. (laughs) How can I, as a manager, help you move the needle? What areas can we, can I help you work on? And that's a good place for feedback for your manager. What are some things we're going to park in lot or bike rack? Just want me to know. Keeping you abreast of things that are going on. And then opportunity for me to give feedback as your manager to you in writing. When you do that consistently and in that first 90 days, it's beautiful because you can see exactly where they're having some questions consistently, exactly where they're having some struggles, where they're really starting to shine, what things they care about. And if you have to tweak their role, 
then you have a good opportunity to do it because you have a good measurable document about how you're actually looking at that work. And over the course of a year as a manager, then you're able to look back when it's time for evaluation. And rather than trying to recall what happened in your mind in the last couple of weeks, because we only can go back six weeks in our mind, okay? And if things were going wrong in the last six weeks, your whole evaluation is going to be skewed that way. Things going well, the same. But it allows us to give us a longer view. And then keeping great people. So as I'm closing out, here are some of the things I want you to be thinking about. Avoiding the setup to fail syndrome. So lots of us have had some really tough experiences, am I right? Where it's just been not quite right. Not quite right. People have let us down. You know, they said they could do one thing. They came in and did another. It was a whole mess. You look crazy. You have to do everything yourself. And so you start to have this like foreboding feeling that it's going to go wrong again. And so it's a little bit like self-sabotage where, and Harvard Business Review writes a really good article about this, where you start to set them up to fail, essentially, because you step in where you shouldn't and you micromanage where you normally wouldn't. And the first time they make a mistake, you're like, I knew you were going to make a mistake. I was just waiting for it to happen. So not setting up your people to fail, avoiding that. Investing in performance management, and that is in performance management systems. And if your HR team already has one and it's a mess, trying to learn how to use it properly or adapt it for the work you need to do on your team. So for me, that just means having really good work planning. So I have my team's development plan for the whole team. Then I have individual development plans. Each of their goals roll up into the development team goals. My goals come off of those goals, so everything goes together. So my team member here should be able to say, I know how my responsibility and my goal this year to be able to increase um, our stewardship activities by X percent and increase our numbers by Y percent directly influences Kashana's ability to do this. And so taking the time to be able to create really good performance management is important So, because people want to know where they are. Equitable stretch projects. Oftentimes we give our projects to the people we like. They're confident. They always get it done. They always come through in the clutch. No, no, friends. If 70% of that 100% pie of professional development comes from stretch projects, that means everybody has to get access to the stretch project. So the way I do it is just a lazy Susan. So I just, whose turn is it? And what, is the, what do we need to get done? And what's the core competency I'm trying to grow? And that's the next person that gets to take on a new project. It wasn't in line with our goals anyway in terms of what we had to do that year. It was in that parking lot. And so that's how I'm able to keep team members fresh, keep them thinking about something they want to do and growing their skills. That's especially important if you have team members who are like, I just want to grow in my role and I want to take on more stuff and I feel stuck. You don't necessarily have more money to pay them this year. Giving them a change in title is not going to change exactly what they're doing, but giving them access to some stretch projects will increase their core competencies or give them new core competencies that might set them up for something else within your organization or on another team. And that's okay. And then training and staff development plans. So making sure that you all are taking time when you do your development plans to do your staff development plans. And for me, I make development, personal development, a requirement in my staff planning. Everybody has to do something for your mental health, for your physical health, for your professional development health. I need you at a conference. I need you somewhere. If we can't afford to do lots of the big paid stuff, Hello, free stuff that's on the internet in abundance right now. So figuring out with them what are the webinars you're going to attend, what are the Facebook groups you're going to join, because I know they have good information, what articles you're going to read, making sure that you're investing in them. It sounds like a lot of work for us, doesn't it? I just want to quit being a manager right now. Forget it. It's a lot, it's a lot of work we have to do, but this is the job. And then own it. It's not HR's job. 
So it doesn't matter to me that your HR department does a terrible job of your annual development and performance plans and evaluations. You can do a simpler, more straightforward one for your team that keeps them in line with where they need to go professionally and helps you to meet and exceed your goal. This is part of your job. And so leaving it off to someone else is not the responsible thing to do. And it doesn't help grow your people. And then asking your team for feedback and meaning it. And so how I do that is giving feedback about contributions, not just areas of improvement, building relationships, deepening engagement, and fostering loyalty. When you ask them for feedback about you, all of those things tend to happen. Sounds an awful lot like the work we do with our donors. All of the steps are the same. We know how to do this work because we're doing it with our donors every single day. We just seem to cross the threshold of our offices and we just forget because we're busy. And like everything goes out the window. So making sure that you're doing that and letting your talent lead, giving your team members the opportunity to be able to lead projects and to be able to allow you to do other work that you need to do. What that means is that you've got to set the vision for them. You have to be able to articulate what success looks like. And then you've got to let them fly and do what they need to do. Lastly, glamour work versus the housework. So this tends to be very gendered, and then it goes one more step and tends to be very racial in terms of how it works out. And here's what I mean. Oftentimes, the women are the ones who wash the dishes in the sink in the employee kitchen because we're tired of looking at it. Oftentimes, we're the ones who plan the office parties. Oftentimes, if you're a person of color, you're the one who sits on the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee because we're supposed to be the arbiters of all things DEI. If those types of activities are not directly tied to strategic outcomes, they are housework. The glamour work are the activities, are the projects, are the things you work on that are tied to strategic planning, strategic objectives, and the money. So if you're doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, for example, and that's tied to a strategic objective about how you raise more money, about how your organization grows, about how your organization is positioned, excellent. That is glamour work. If it's not, and it's just a fun thing we do for fun, that is housework. Making sure that you have some balance and that you're looking at who gets to do what type of work in our organization as a manager is super important in making sure that you're able to retain the talent that you have. So let's put it all together because I want to make sure I have time for questions. So in recruiting and hiring, make sure you're asking yourselves the big questions. A lot of this work is internal before you go outside. Setting specific goals for your team and for your hiring. Why do you want people to be on your team and in your organization as a fundraiser? Making sure that you market for the candidates you want, that you nurture your colleagues and networks, and that you recruit year-round, even when you're not looking. Because to your earlier point, lots of times somebody picks up the phone and says, I have a role, and I'm so thinking about you, and I noticed last year that you did so-and-so. Are you interested? And that's how a lot of our roles happen. And so since that's a part of what happens, you have to be recruiting year round to know who is in your network and then who is outside of your network that you want in your network. Developing and keeping your people, making sure that you are doing the things for onboarding that create stickiness, that you have a focus on inclusion, not just making sure that you have a diverse talent on your team, but that they have a seat at the table, they have a voice at the table, they have decision-making Agency at the table are equally as important and being able to check yourself at each time and see where your organization is and where you are as a manager so that you're able to continue to focus on keeping really good people on your team. 
taking slices for clarity and understanding, and developing your leaders so that they stick with you, having a personal and a professional development plan for your team, super critical to being able to keep folks. All right, questions. Well, I just gave you guys like, woo. I know folks are like, okay, all right. It's okay, it's all right. <laughs> Hi, you have a question. Um, I guess I just have found in the past that often frustration comes uh, with with our members when the structure is impressed. Mm. Especially with, with the changing industry, a lot of our organizations are set up with major gifts, stewardship, annual business investment, and where the industry is going with creating integrations programs. And I'm just wondering if you have any resources on how to structure the organization with uh, the trends and the, the direction that countries Totally. So the question is about um, really being wondering how structure of your team can align with where trends are going with fundraising broadly. Okay. So I would say structure has to do with the goals and the objectives and the outcomes that your organization is seeking and less about what's trendy and fun to do. And so if you have a clear strategic plan about where your organization is headed and your development plan is the complement to how you're going to accelerate that strategic plan, then what you need is to figure out what is the, who are the talent or who are the talented folks you need on team to be able to achieve those goals. And so you might be thinking about like, if the trend is to make sure that there's a much clearer digital presence for how we do fundraising and in your strategic plan is to have a wider physical uh, digital footprint then it makes sense to start to have folks who have the competency around technology to be able to start to learn and onboard and grow with those trends. And so really thinking about how your organization is actually going to flow strategically, how your development plan is elevating that strategy, and then what are the things that are happening now in terms of trends that would allow you to be able to accelerate that, accelerate that elevation. Okay? So it's different for every organization. I don't think there's one cookie-cutter answer. Another question? We're over here. We're going to bring you a mic. I run the Donor Care Center, and um, how would you suggest that we keep a pool of... Um, how do you suggest we keep a pool of candidates? And in a call center position, they're not the highest paying, and it's a really high attrition um, rate. And if you have a pool, it could be outdated within weeks. How would you suggest that? And what do you think about assessments prior to them applying online? Like, how do you feel about that? Totally. So two questions. How do you keep a pool when um, things are changing and the, the pool could be dead in a couple of weeks? Um, so I think that you're probably going to have to start marketing specifically to the types of individuals you want. And so you might have an uptick right before your seasonal hires where you have folks who might have been on your list that you've reached out to throughout the year or that you put some marketing dollars behind targeted ads or targeted um, outreach so that you're getting folks in episodically and then asking them how they want to stay opted in. Do you want to continue to find out about more opportunities? Is there someone else who should know about that? So doing some more email marketing, um, I think, to be able to facilitate that is going to be really helpful to you. So that's for the first question. But it's definitely putting some, some, a little bit of muscle behind um, some marketing in terms of outbound marketing. The second thing is, I do not love assessments. I don't want to waste anybody's time before they have put it, before I have talked to them. However, I know there are some roles where you need to know, do you know how to do a couple of things before we start? I like to do screening first in terms of talking to individuals, then assessment, then hiring. 
And so I try to put assessments after the initial conversation to allow folks to opt into that before we move on. So if you have an assist, even if you put in your like advertisement, um, as part of our hiring process, um, candidates who move forward past the initial screening um, will take a short assessment um, to assess the following through two or three or four things. If this is something that you are comfortable with, we'd love for you to apply. If it's something that you're interested in doing, this might not be the right opportunity for you. And putting that in your marketing materials up front, because folks might be like, I don't want to do that. So they'll opt out. And folks are like, sounds good. So they'll opt in. Okay, so putting more of that choice up there. Other questions? Hi. Hi. Um, I have a question about this, uh, everything that you're describing. It is a lot of work, and it's only a part of what our job is sometimes. Yeah. Um, because we are managing people, but we also have our own goals and objectives that we yep. have to reach. So it's a bit of a, a twofold question. One is, um, how do we ensure that we have the time to be able to build? Because often this turnover is not happening because we've planned for it. Uh, sometimes it's just happening uh, yep. because someone's decided to move on. Yep. So we have to make that time when we don't really have the capacity to do so. But then how do we always um, manage that the consistency in the hiring process and how each uh, manager's leadership styles are different are um, impacting the teams and how they work together in the organization because yeah. there are different leaders in different departments yep. that are probably going to take different approaches to how they get the talent that they need and yeah. how they aim to retain the talent in the organization. So Totally. It's so there's two questions. Question. So the first question is about how do I make the time? And so for me, I am a checklist queen. And so the hardest time to do this is the first time. I codify everything. So I know when it's time to hire for a job, here are the 7, 12, 24 steps that we need to do. And so it's like, meet with these people, talk to this person, look at this review. It's located here. I hyperlink where things need to go. I take the time and oftentimes it's my time on the weekend because let me tell you what I don't want to do, waste money and time having to rehire later. And so it's worth it to me to sacrifice some of my personal time, if that's appropriate. Some people don't believe in that and I understand that, to get that done right so that I am not stressed the heck out later down the road. And once I have it codified, then I go and talk to my stakeholders internally. Here's what I'm looking to do. Here's how I'd like you to be involved when we get to this part of the process. This is why I'd like you to be involved um, how much lead time do you need in order for me to get things on your schedule? Who's the best person I need to talk to to be able to do so, et cetera, et cetera. So that I know already when I have to work with Betsy that I need two weeks, I need to be able to do so-and-so, and so she may not be the best person for a rapid-fire hire, for example. She may be somebody for a longer search and just knowing who and when to put into place. So I do that thinking up front for my own sanity. So that's to be quite... So the job of being a manager is tough work. I'm not going to pretend like this is light work. This is serious stuff, um, and it is stressful, but I try to think through the ways that I can do that upfront work for myself. You know, a glass of wine does help, a cup of mint tea, whatever your whiskey, whatever your thing is, a little fruit cake, um, so that I can sit down with my, I have always have my movie on in the background, my laptop, and I just work out what I need to do, so that gives me my peace later on. The second part about the different stakeholders that are involved is that we can't control what we can't control. And so unless you have the influence or the power of position to be able to say, this is how it's going to go, I start where I am. And so if I'm able to influence just my team for this go round, that's where I start. Then I will codify the success I had with the process. 
I want to let you guys know when we did this hiring, here are the steps we followed, here's what we've learned, here's what we'd like to model for other teams. We're happy to have a conversation about it, or we would love for other teams to try it, whatever your language is for your organization based on your level of influence and so forth and so on. But it takes time, but controlling what you can control. One more question. Hi. What do you think are, what do you think are the red flags for an organization when the retention seems to be not that great? What do I need to do? What's the, when the retention is not great, what's the first part of the question? What, what are the red flags for you for retention? When I'm applying or when I'm in the organization? When you're in the organization and you see that you have a certain percentage retention, like... When do you see like red flags and what are those red flags? For totally. You? So it depends on what type of loss, retention loss I'm thinking about. So if I'm thinking about retention loss by the type of position, then it might be that the scope of the role is such that people are burning out pretty quickly. And so I'd be looking to look at scope of how we are writing out positions and expectations of the role against what we've scoped for. If I'm seeing types of people leaving, like if all of the black women in your organization leave and they don't get replaced by other people of color, or other black women, then I'm starting to look at some cultural practices that are happening within the organization that are probably deterring folks from staying because they're not being set up for success or they don't feel like they have agency within that organization or they're experiencing microaggressions or tons of other things. And every now and again, it's performance. Okay, hello. There's performance across the board for everything. But being able to see like what's happening if it's by type of position or by types of folks that are leaving, those red flags are going to be different. Okay. All right. We don't have any time for any more questions, but I will stay behind during the break. I have some quick party favors. Here are some books that I love and the link to it if you want to be able to check it out. Amazon does not pay me. Okay. I just wanted to get all the books I like in one place. So it's just AMZNTO Fundiva. And you'll check out all the books that I actually read and use. Um, I have some free tools on my website. So if you go to kashanaco.com forward slash e-courses, you'll be able to check out all the free tools that I have there. I have them there and I also have them in my shop. Um, and so it's kashanaco.com forward slash shop. And then if you need to book some time with me to talk to me or anything of that nature, here is all of my contact information. I want to thank you all so much for spending time with me today talking about sticky teams, how to recruit and retain teams that stick. You all are amazing. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you, Kashana, for such a great presentation. Sorry we went a little over, but I think it was really worth it. So many great information and the questions that you've asked. Uh, take time to fill out res the uh, evaluation, as she asked in the beginning. It helps us. It helps her. And now it's time for some networking. So uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. <laughs>